The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Find out more about the network and other amazing Alberta-made podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer. And I'm Ryan Hassman. And you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're also joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart, and we're recording this episode on October 16th, 2018. Happy Cannabis Eve, guys. The night before Christmas. <laughs> the night before cannabis. Yeah, I, I heard some uh, uh, a New York Times reporter was calling it, saying that Canadians were calling it Sea Day. Yeah. I've never I, heard anyone I, I haven't. I, I think that's totally a made-up thing. I've never heard anybody say it, call it Sea Day. No, so. that's not a thing. No, no. A- anyway, th- this episode, we're going to talk about... What happens when a white nationalist anti-immigration vigilante group shows up to your local political party pub night? The minimum wage in Alberta is now $15 per hour, and the leaders of Alberta's two main conservative parties want to roll back the wage for young workers, or so they say. And we have a lot of questions this week, so we're going to dive into the mailbag and dedicate an extended segment to answer some of the great questions you sent us. But first we're going to delve into some of the latest political gossip and candidate nomination news. Okay, so, well, listeners, as you know, Dave himself is probably the best source for tracking nomination dates, when things are happening, when they've been opened up. Um, What I do is I just check his site regularly, even when I want to know something about any of the parties. So there's a couple interesting ones. Here in St. Albert, I'd be remiss not to mention that it is now open. Uh, I am not running. I'm on the candidate selection committee, and we are doing. Uh, our first, or I guess the only forum will be coming up next Monday with the vote taking place on November the 22nd uh, on the UCP side, of course. In general, I feel like we're getting there now. Most of the ridings are either open or kind of about to be opened up. And uh, yeah, it's an exciting time. A lot of us are involved with a lot of different campaigns. I'm sure this is true of any of the people involved in any of the parties. And so it's tough these days choosing which candidate to help and You kind of have to schedule it based on which one is the most urgent, not which one is the most important. So good luck to all the candidates out there. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention is a shameless self-promotion, and that I will be moderating a panel on activism at the 2018 November Manning Networking Conference taking place in Red Deer on November the 24th. Well, well, well that's, that sounds like fun. If you're the type of person who goes to Manning Center events, definitely go to... Uh... To Ryan's panel. Post, <laughs> post-cannabis, nobody can really say how crazy the Manning Conference will be. Oh, it's going to be wild. There yeah. are libertarians who will be there, and I'm sure they'll be taking up their new liberty. Well, say hi to Preston for us. <laughs> yeah, me and Preston go way back. <laughs> the, uh, Dave can take us through kind of a serious list of the nominations which are underway, but one of the most interesting ones that I just wanted to mention, and I don't think this has ever happened before, although... Dave is the right person to confirm that. Uh, as you, as the audience will remember, about what two months ago there was a by-election, and one of the MLAs elected is Layla Goodridge and former Murray Conklin. Now, as it turns out, because the House hasn't actually sat yet, and they won't be recalled until October the 29th, which I believe is t- typically a throne speech. So, uh, n- not in the fall. The th- throne speech. Th- th- it would be a throne speech in the spring. So oh, this okay. is just a continuation of the spring. Just a, a normal yeah. house business day. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, because of the changes to the riding boundaries, Layla's actually going to be running in a totally different, well, about a 30% different riding. 
called yeah. Fort McMurray Lac La Biche. And the Conservative Party is holding the nomination for that on October 25 and 26. So I don't really know who's going to win that one. But theoretically, you could have an MLA lose their nomination before they even have a chance to sit in the House. That is so brutal. Has it ever happened before? I can't. Not not that I can. Not that I was able to find. I did a. I did a uh, quick scan after we talked about this earlier, and I couldn't find a case where uh, where this had happened. So it'd be it would be highly unusual uh, for yeah for an MLA to lose their nomination to run in the next election before they even have a chance to sit as an MLA in the legislature. Yeah, it's a tough one. Like I, I tend to sympathize with candidates and politicians because I know how hard it is to to get there. Um, but the riding is changing significantly. They yeah. added Black Labish, they added several First Nations and Métis settlements. So, like, it's a significantly different yeah. riding. They, they added about 20,000 new voters in, in the south section of the riding. And for those of you who kind of know the area in, in, uh, in northeast Alberta, Fort McMurray-Conklin was like Fort Mc, the south side of Fort McMurray, and then it kind of went horiz- or horizontally down to uh, down to just above just above the Cold Lake and Lac La Biche area, and the new riding Fort McMurray Lac La Biche takes in all basically I think all of Lac La Biche County, Kikano Métis settlement, uh, which is a huge population there. Uh, so it is significant, and there is a strong candidate running for the UCP nomination who's uh, from the Lac La Biche area who ran for the mayor of Lac La Biche County twice, uh, Gail Broadbent Ludwig. Uh, so she's so Lila Goodridge is facing a, a strong nomination challenge, and there's you know it's a it's a significantly new riding. Uh, and uh, I mean, I guess we'll see on the 26th of October whether uh, whether she has, she's actually facing a significant nomination challenge. But I mean, just the change in the composition of the riding uh, suggests that uh, that she could be facing a big challenge. Well, and I mean, she would have known that like she would have known about this when she decided to run for the for the by election. It's not like it would be a surprise to her. Maybe she had hoped that it would work out differently. But it is just a really tough situation, and I think the party has to err on the side of letting members decide. You, I, I was actually a little surprised that that the party wouldn't acclaim her in the new riding, that the UCP didn't acclaim her, because she, she had just run in a highly contested nomination race, like in June uh, or May. Uh, so, I mean, they just went through this whole nomination process up there, and and they, as as you said, she hasn't had a, even had a chance to sit as an MLA in the legislature. So I was kind of surprised that they would they would hold an open nomination, actually hold an open nomination contest in this riding, and wouldn't wouldn't just let her be acclaimed uh, because they just went through this process a few months ago. But I mean, I guess they're going to let the the party members decide. Yeah, and it's interesting. Jason Kenny gets accused often of being you know really top down or really like an iron fisted leader. And not only in this one, but there's been a number of nominations where quite frankly, I wish he was being a little bit more iron fisted. They really are letting members choose. And, you know, it's actually tough to recruit. Uh, Moving aside from Layla, like if you think of the type of person who could be a really star candidate, but who's in a public service role right now, the problem with recruiting those types of people I think we've mentioned this before, chiefs of police or fire chiefs or whoever it is, is that often they have to be in a nonpartisan role, um, and that's what gives them their stature. But uh, the UCP has chosen to, I don't know what the best analogy is, let it ride to see what happens and not to intervene. So we shall see. We shall. I heard, did we talk about this? I heard that the new Quebec government virtually didn't do any nominations for its candidates. 
the CAQ. And I, have, that, I have no idea. Yeah, and that they basically, maybe there's a reader out there who follows it close enough to confirm, but this is what I heard, that they basically acclaimed all their candidates. So the leadership team or the leader chose his slate, which is maybe a little far the other way on the old uh, pendulum, but it certainly would make make it interesting and efficient. And you would avoid, here comes the segue, <laughs> candidates with um, sketchy details in their past or affiliations or horrible Facebook comments. Well, or, or, or you'd have to wear it if they if Yeah, they well, that's true. Because, because you, you, you actually chose them. You couldn't say, yeah. oh, well, the members chose them and we'll disqualify them. You know, you actually handpicked them. So yeah. it, is a, it is a bit of a double-edged sword. You, bet, you better be, you know, darn sure that, uh, that, uh, that those candidates are actually vetted. Yeah, properly. well, you didn't take my bait on the segue. Well, that's because we have to talk about uh, a certain other politician uh, on Dave's list of people that he's watching and getting nominated. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this week, or pardon me, last week, uh, a, it, we had a bit of a blast from the past moment, but the, the not-too-distant past in uh, Alberta politics with fighting Joe Anglin reappearing on Alberta's political scene uh, and now joining the Freedom Conservative Party, Derek Fildebrandt's. Uh, Splinter Party and uh, Anglin, who's a former Wildrose MLA, former leader of the Alberta Greens, former uh, Marine, but didn't who served in Vietnam, but didn't see combat. And I think he was like a cop in Philadelphia or something like that as well. And he uh, also and, did and, electrical and, stuff. Yeah, and he was in the Coast Guard. I think he was in the U.S. Coast Guard. You guys are just point. now. But, it sounds like you're making a person up. No, no, seriously. Uh, Do you remember the letter that he? <laughs> I remember. My perspective on this is my good friend Brock Harrison was Wild Rose Decom at the time, and uh, Joe published this. I don't think he made the statement in the house. I think it was a written thing, like a letter. To, it was a letter to the minister. That's what it was. The minister's office stopped giving him briefings, and he was not happy, and so he wrote like this long monologue about his career. And involving like crawling through the dirt, and like he implied that he saw combat in Vietnam, and just all this crazy stuff. And so Brock, as the Wild Rose Decom, was forced to comment, and I think he said something like, "Well, Joe could have been a little bit less colorful, or something like that." It was so like well manicured. So <laughs> Joe Anglin is, is certainly a colorful character in Alberta politics. Um, he 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 is the former Wild Rose MLA for Rimby Rocky Mountain House Sundry, and that's where he's he says he's planning to run again yeah. uh, under the Freedom Conservative Party banner against Jason Nixon, who defeated him for the Wild Rose Party nomination back in 2014. Yeah. Before Anglin left the Wild Rose Caucus to sit as an independent, and then try he tried to run for the PC Party nomination, and the PCs didn't want wanted to run, so they ended up running as an independent in the election. He ended up losing the election. And then has been in this ser this long series of legal battles with Elections Alberta over, uh, I think, a two hundred and fifty dollar fine, and then something to do about with confiscating lawn signs or election signs. Uh, it's kind of this this ongoing saga uh, that ha has him pop up in the news every few months. Did you mention his career or his involvement with the Green Party? I, I did briefly mention it. So yeah. so in the mid two thousands, Anglin, he basically led a 
landowners revolt against the provincial government over the construction of new trans transmission lines uh, through central Alberta. And it was a real, like, I mean, it was a real revolt. Like these were conservative voters who were revolting against the PC government. And I, I actually think that if you can pinpoint one of the big fractures in rural Alberta in conservative stronghold rural Alberta that drove voters away from the PC party in the mid 2000s, eventually towards the Wild Rose party in 2012, I think that the electrical and transmission line issue was a huge one because I think the PC voters or the, the PC party and the PC government forgot how to talk to their own voters, especially on this issue. I remember seeing videos of conservative cabinet ministers going into rural Alberta, going to, um, I don't know, going to Rimby or going to Sundry and, and different areas, Leduc, and talking to hall, a hall full of three or 400 uh, farmers and acreage owners and landowners. And these people who, you know, who are conservatives, who should be, you know, the conservatives, the PC party expected to be little conservatives were, were booing the cabinet ministers. They forgot how to speak the language of their voters. Yeah, uh, they, they took them for granted for so long. And I think that was the, the electrical transmission line issue was really one of the, the I think the, 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 the things that sparked the, or the, the issue that one of the issues that sparked the fire that, that led to the Wild Rose Party doing so well in, in central rural Alberta in 2012 and 2015. Um, and Joe England was at the center of it. And uh, and he ran for the Green Party in 2008. He got 22% of the vote in, uh, I think, Lacombe Pinoco was the riding, which was the best result the Green Party has ever got provincially in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, and then he briefly became the leader of the party. And then there was an issue around financial disclosures or, or the, it, was, it was a submission of documents to Elections Alberta. And it, I think it had a lot to do with an internal skirmish that was going on within the party between Anglin's crew and the old kind of Green Party loyalists. And it led to the Alberta Greens being dissolved by Elections Alberta. And that's how Anglin eventually found himself in the Wild Rose Party. Now, was he one of the floor crossers? No, he was not one of the floor crossers. He left the, I believe he left the, the Wild Rose a few days or a few weeks before the big floor crossing. Um, and that was like the big news when he was like, it was a huge deal when he left in terms of the, the, the media coverage. Um, and then a few weeks like later, the, or maybe, maybe even a few days later, basically the entire Wild Rose caucus led by Daniel Smith crossed the floor to the PCs. I really want to still be around when someone does the dramatic film retelling of the life of Joe Anglin. Mm. Like it could be, it could be a movie on the scale of like the room in its strangeness and hilarity. I, jo Joe Anklin is definitely one of the most interesting characters in Alberta politics. He's, he is all over the place and you cannot keep this man down. He is, he is, I mean, he's tough and he'll come back at you uh, in terms of, of his issues. Once he's focused on an issue, I think it's, it's really difficult to, uh, for, I guess anyone who's anyone who's gone against him can, uh, can attest it's difficult to get him to get him off your back once he's uh, once he's focused so he's persistent if nothing else uh and i think jason nixon is fighting that out right now because he's having to face joe anklin i think this will be the third time he's had to face him in an election and and i think uh, joe anklin is going to cause jason nixon a lot of grief between now and next spring well and it really does even if it's even if it's not much of a threat it's a psychological distraction for Mr. Nixon, and it will certainly distract him from being an asset to the central campaign, I would assume. You know, he's a fairly senior person in caucus. I think he's host leader. And he's the kind of guy that would probably spend more time, or I guess I shouldn't put these words in his mouth. I would presume that he would be 
in battleground ridings, you know, helping out in the Hende belt around Edmonton, for example. But with Joe there, he said, I would guess, and if I was on the Nixon campaign, I would tell him to stay home because, sure, he probably won't lose to Joe Anglin. Probably. But you can't take it for granted. So, yeah, I think, change. I, I think it's going to have a similar effect as, as Derek Fildebrandt running against Leela here in Chestermore Strathmere. You have kind of two, you know, I'll call Leela here a popular MLA and, you know, Jason Nixon a popular MLA among conservatives. Yeah. Um, someone who would be a draw for candidates yeah. to have come door, out door knocking with them. And I think oh, having, having Fildebrandt and, and Anglin running against them will keep them at home more often than oh, the party yeah. probably would like. No, it's a great point. I mean, Leela would be fantastic here in Edmonton in the, again, that Hende belt of winnable seats or swing seats. Um, but if I was her campaign, I would say absolutely not. You have to stay home. So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this election is not going to be boring, even if it turns out exactly how most people would bet. There will certainly be some twists and turns along the way. So with Jumpin' Joe Anglin, uh, you just never know quite literally what's going to happen next so for yeah. for us it's entertainment it's going to be great yeah so so there are a couple nominations this week that i just want to before we move on to other topics that i just want to cover as we record this right now the ucp nomination in the highwood riding is currently underway and uh incumbent ucp mla wayne anderson uh who was elected in 2015 uh is facing three challengers including carrie fisher not not princess leia uh, but the Carrie Fisher who ran against him in the 2015 election as the PC party candidate, because Anderson was elected as a Wild Rose MLA. Uh, and listeners of this podcast might rem remember Carrie Fisher as the PC candidate who defeated Danielle Smith for the PC party nomination after Smith crossed the floor uh, to the PC party in 2015 or 2014. And the, the nomination was in 2015. Um, the Alberta Party is having their nomination meeting in Edmonton Mill Woods on October 17th, as is the Alberta Liberal Party. Uh, and we don't really talk about the Alberta Liberals very much. Uh, there's not really not too much activity going on, especially for nominations, but this is the first one they've had in a little while. Uh, the NDP have a nomination meeting on October 18th in Calgary Elbow. Uh, Janet uh, Aramenko, who is a past city council candidate, is expected to be acclaimed. It seems like a, a decent pickup for the NDP, though it's going to be a tough riding for the NDP to really, uh, I think, make gains in. It's currently represented by Alberta Party MLA Greg Clark, and the UCP have nominated Doug Schweitzer to run against him. Uh, so there's kind of two big, two big names on the conservative side of the spectrum in, the, in that uh, in that race. So the NDP will will oh. be trying hard to. Uh, to uh to make gains at all in uh in in calgary okay. but I, I think she's a good candidate i want to put a flag down here to come back to this that's the second time tonight that you referred to them as the two conservative parties <laughs> and it will not be the last because it's true in uh in uh, uh later on later on this week uh, october 18th and october 20th uh the ucp are holding a big nomination contest in the new airdrie cochran riding uh now this is going to be interesting airdrie uh, for those of you who know, is a booming has been a booming community. I think it's like tripled or quadrupled the size of the city in the past ten years. It's it's huge in terms of population gain, and it finally has two two ridings: Airdrie East, which is represented by Angela Pitt, who's a UCP MLA, and now well, Airdrie Cochrane and the UCP are going to choose their uh, choose their candidate uh, later this week. Um, yeah, and then on October twentieth, I'm just running 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 down the list. October twentieth. 
the UCP will be choosing their candidate in Calgary Shaw. Uh, and on October 20th, and this is an interesting one, the NDP will be, are expected to acclaim Anne McGrath as their candidate in Calgary Varsity. I have to tell you all, dear listeners, although I'm sure 99% of you know this, Anne McGrath, who I understand is a quite kind and capable person, ran for the literal Communist Party of Canada. I'm not saying that to be funny, like, the NDP or the communists, like I made a joke on Twitter today, I actually mean the Communist Party of Canada. In 1984, when the Berlin Wall was still up, the Cold War was still on, Anne McGrath says, you know what, it's time for me to step up and to run as a communist. <laughs> An actual, not even kidding, communist. Now, we all do silly things in our youth, um, and so I guess I can't hold it against her, but she did run in Edmonton Strathcona. So I find it very interesting. I also had a Communist Party opponent when I ran in Edmonton Strathcona. And, 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 he, and how, well, how well did they do, Ryan, when, when the Communist Party ran against you in Edmonton Strathcona? Well, the other Communist Party beat me. Just kidding. <laughs> I think we've talked about this before. One of my favorite things about Canadian politics is how the Marxist-Leninists and the Communist Party won't merge. Um, like, well, they've, they've, they've kept their fight going this long. Why would they merge now? It's not like they're looking to win the next election. Well, and why would they merge with it with the uh, another left deviationist group? So I had to get it out of my system. Okay, that was a reflex. Now, back to our previously scheduled programming. But she's running in Calgary in varsity, right? Yes. Yeah. No, she's she's uh, Anne McGrath, uh, uh, longtime NDP stalwart. Uh, why Calgary? Well, she's living in Calgary. She's working as ex the executive director at uh, McDougal the McDougal Center in the Premier's office in Southern Alberta. Of her last 15 years, there's no way that longer than one year she lived in Calgary because she was Jack Layton. I mean, maybe a couple years after Jack Layton passed away, but she was in Jack Layton's office in Ottawa. And then I know she was in the premier's office here. So, like, if, if she's a star candidate and she really wants to be an MLA, is varsity? Well, I guess the problem is they hold all the Edmonton seats as I'm thinking this through. So, <laughs> the, unless someone was going to retire in an Edmonton seat, um, I guess it makes sense, but is varsity if you're going to pick a you know relatively safe seat in Calgary, is varsity the one? I think in terms of like if I could rank the top five Calgary seats for the NDP, I think varsity would be in the top five. Um, I do think it's interesting that they've they've had and varsity is it's getting a little it's getting a little bit redrawn going into the next election with the boundary redistribution. Um, so the Cal it's taking a, a big chunk of the former Calgary Hawkwood riding. Uh, which was Michael Connolly's writing. So Stephanie, Stephanie McLean was elected as the NDP MLA for Calgary Varsity in 2015. She initially said she was going to run for re-election. Then she said she was not going to run for re-election. Then because of the boundary change, Michael Connolly said he was going to run for the NDP nomination in Calgary Varsity. Then he withdraws from the race. Not soon, not, not long after, and McGrath announces she's going to run. Seems a little uh, seems a little convenient to me, doesn't it? What? Why would they push Connolly out for her? Like again? Well, I, I, I don't know if they actually pushed Connolly out. I do think it's odd, though. I mean, Connolly seems like an. I mean, both well, both Connolly and McLean seem like up and comers in the NDP caucus. McLean, who was a cabinet minister, Connolly, who might be a cabinet minister if the NDP were reelected to a second term next year. You think? Uh, if well, I think, yeah, I think so. Um, so. But it, it, it does seem a little odd that Anne McGrath is running. Um, 
but I mean, I guess she is. <laughs> yeah, it, it again makes it interesting for us. It'll give this Edmonton flavored podcast a reason to tune into Calgary Varsity in a yeah, and I do I do expect that every single piece of UCP literature in the next election in Calgary Varsity will have oh, oh, yeah. scary Communist Party of Canada with a hammer and sickle. Yeah, um, oh yeah, absolutely. Big on it, and and that'll be the the UCP's big line of attack. They should have some mascots made up: a hammer and a sickle <laughs> to, to, and to chase Anne McGrath around. The around like the chicken in West Wing. Just you know, around, not even say a word. To uh, uh, on the topic of of hammers and sickles, um, oh, man, I, I posted something on Twitter today uh, that I thought was really. I mean, it was an interesting historical tidbit about Alberta politics on uh, on February twenty third, nineteen twenty four. Uh, MLAs uh, entered the Legislative Assembly chamber in the mor- early in the morning to discover that a red hammer and sickle flag of the Soviet Union was draped over the Speaker's chair. Yeah, what in, in the, the world? Assembly. Yeah, what a weird, what a Can weird. You read? Did you look up any other details or? You know, I, I, found, I found this in a little column that was called Under the Dome. And I think the journal actually, I think Emma Graney still writes this column for the journal or, or yeah. resuscitated it. Um, but this is in the journal from 1924, and I, I'm going to read this uh, because I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a hilarious tidbit. Considerable excitement was occasioned down at the legislature buildings when members dropping into the chamber one morning for a quiet examination of their daily grist of mail were startled to see, depending from a point immediately over the, Mr. Speaker's chair, that the emblem of the Soviet, red, the red flag, Straining their ears, members listened intently for the accompanying melody of the Internationale, but it did not, it did not eventuate. <laughs> then questions were asked as to where the red flag came from and who put it there. Nobody could tell, and the offending emblem of the Soviet was removed to Mr. Speaker's apartment, giving the idea that possibly Mr. Speaker would ask Mr. Christopher, the well-known labor member, who is known mm-hmm. to have decidedly communistic leanings to carry mm-hmm. the banner in the daily procession, which precedes the opening of the house. <laughs> when last seen, the flag lashed to a stout pole of bamboo was flaunting its challenge from the press room windows, which overlooked the river, giving the impression when viewed from outside that the revolutionary forces were securely entrenched behind locked doors and refused to surrender. <laughs> And McGrath must have seen this and got so, the idea so to run. My question is: Is where's the flag now? Seriously, someone must have it in their basement or in, or in a yeah. in a in a box somewhere. Um, it must be in an archive. If 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 you, dear listener, know where the Soviet flag that was draped over the speaker's <laughs> chair in the Legislative Assembly of Alberta on February twenty third, nineteen twenty four, is, uh, please contact us at podcast at daveberta.ca. I I actually think Dave, there we have a, a potential new sort of sub show which is story time with papa cornway that, that was <laughs> yeah. an amazing retelling and i hope that you read that uh yeah. to ben before you put him to bed oh thank oh thank you thank you very much well i i, I i'm shortly getting a copy of mouse land that i'm going to read to my son before he goes to sleep. <laughs> ryan right just to let you know ryan of course uh, you are but yeah. but uh i i'm hoping to find a little tidbit like that of alberta history uh, for uh, for a future for a future podcast to share with uh, share with our dear listeners also, they just don't write them like that anymore, do they? No, they really don't. <laughs> it's like it's a certain art to that style of writing. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I, I posted the uh, I posted the clip on Twitter, so you guys can you guys can check it out on Twitter, Dave. Uh, Twitter at Dave Cornway. 
The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by Otherwise, a really great podcast created under the auspices of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. It's a variety show dedicated to empowering diverse communities living on Treaty 6 territory by sharing stories of their lived experiences. The team behind Otherwise is made up of artists, activists, youth, and civically engaged Edmontonians who want to highlight Edmonton's ethnic, linguistic, and cultural diversity and bring about positive social change. Among the hosts are Ahmed Nomadic, Edmonton's Poet Laureate, community builder Karen Tang, and More Nike Olau Shebi Khan, founder of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation. Learn more and subscribe at otherwiseshow.com. The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you by ATB Prosper. Whether you're saving for retirement, a major purchase, your child's education, or a rainy day, ATB Prosper helps you create a personalized investment plan to assist you in reaching your financial goals. It's easy to create, manage, and follow your progress through a customized digital dashboard. Start investing with as little as $100 and make additional contributions of as little as $25. For more information to get started saving today, visit atbprosper.com. It all started when the Soldiers of Odin, a white nationalist anti-immigration group, showed up to the West Henday United Conservative Party pub night on October 5th. At the event, members of the Soldiers of Odin posed for photos with three candidates running for the UCP nomination in Edmonton West Henday, Lance Coulter, Leila Houle, and Nicole Williams. The photos were then posted on Facebook by the Soldiers of Odin and discovered by Progress Alberta, a progressive action group run by Duncan Kenny, who blew the alarm on it. The UCP and two of the nomination candidates, Houle and Williams, quickly denounced the group and apologized for posing with the, in the photos, claiming that they did not know who the group was. But Coulter remained silent for a few days until he revealed he actually did know who they were because he saw the logos on their jackets and hats and Googled them before posing in the photo. Coulter told Post Media's Emma Graney that he thought he would give the soldiers of Odin, quote, the benefit of the doubt and have a conversation with them. This contradicted the party statement and leader Jason Kenney, who had said that no one at the party knew who the group was. The soldiers of Odin later said that they had let the UCP know they were coming in advance, but it's not clear who they told. Coulter was later disqualified as a nomination candidate with the UCP executive director, Janice Harrington, saying a polite racist is still a racist. Coulter appealed the decision, but was denied his appeal to re-enter the nomination contest. Brian, what the hell? I knew the day that this broke, we'd be talking about it, and I uh, even vented with you guys a little bit on text, and my emotions have actually kind of gone in a bit of an S-curve here. Um, first of all, I am personal friends with Nicole Williams. In fact, I've been making calls for her this week. The, her nomination is coming up on Monday, and I'm going to be there helping to GOTV, get out the vote, um, and I am 100%, 1,000% sure that Whatever soldiers of Odin believe, it has nothing to do with Nicole Williams. Now, I told you guys when it happened that I was really angry. I was angry at the accusation, which seems a little bit too cavalier to me, that we've gotten to the point where a major party, not a fringe party, but a major party, is just casually accused of having genuinely, genuine sympathies for you know white supremacists. Um, but then Lance Coulter said what he said. And I, I honestly have a hard time processing it. Like, 
anyone seeking political office should not have those views. Anyone who said that they Googled, and, and I also have to admit, and I actually don't say that this is a good thing, I didn't really know what the Soldiers of Odin are about either. I mean, I vaguely heard of them. I, I wouldn't have recognized their logo if I saw it. I would have wondered who these, like, biker gang type guys are, for sure. I would have, I like to think if I was there, my political antenna would have gone off, like, warning, my spidey sense. But, anyway, the comment that he made, like, that you alluded to, he actually, he Googled them, he read what they're about, and he decided since they were polite that he would give them the benefit of the doubt is first of all it's not it, it can't be true second of all it is absolutely appalling and while lance might be a new candidate he's not new to politics he was a political staffer working for a current mp it's even just like forget about um the political tactic of it in the age of what's been happening with the candidates bozo eruptions and all that it's actually appalling at like a deeper level that you would be aware who who these guys are and you would say to yourself, I'm going to give them a chance. It doesn't make any sense. Have you never, like, did you not see Charlottesville? Have you not, are you not aware of this? So I, I really appreciated Janice Harrington's comment, her letter. Um, if you read it and we should post to it, it's actually a really delicious takedown of him and of this approach, this cavalier attitude towards, racists actual white supremacists i need to say that uh, upon reflection i think that a lot of us who truly didn't really know what soldiers of odin is about or recognize the threat like I, I i admit to you that i live in a bubble that doesn't include a lot of awareness about these guys i don't follow i don't have any way of observing them i don't see them in my daily life but I do, to some degree, say that that's on me, and that's on the UCP. Like, I think we need to be more aware. I definitely don't think any candidate now is unaware of the threat, that these people really do show up at things. They really are looking for publicity. I still am very touchy about the suggestion that, in any way, the party has courted these guys or got caught appealing to them or any of that stuff. I think it's crazy. I think it's the real life version of the Facebook comment that the the nature of these events is that you can't possibly stop people from showing up. But once you're aware of who they are, you certainly can ask them to leave. And to make the comment that, well, they were being polite, so I gave them the benefit of the doubt is mind boggling. Would it, like, so <laughs> I guess it happened. And now that it happened, it just can't happen again. And I, I think, too, that, to Kenny's credit, he couldn't be more clear that these people are not welcome. I know that some of our political opponents are looking to make that connection, which, again, has given me pause that there might have been other things in the past. And I guess I just teased Dan McGrath. But the difference is no one official has ever officially reached out to these guys. There may be people on the fringes. Clearly, there are um, who know some of these groups. But... As far as I know, the party that I'm a part of has nothing to do with this. So we can do better, but this episode was a real eye-opener for me. What do you guys think? I, I guess I was shocked at how, I mean, I, I thought this story was, I mean, I was, I was appalled when I saw the photos, but I thought that the UCP would probably do their best to shut this story down on the day after the long weekend. So Tuesday would make it, it'd be news, and then 
then it wouldn't be news. And or then then we'd move on to the next point part in the, in the news cycle. But the Lance Coulter stuff, I mean, the comments that he made, it gave the story a life of its own. And we spent an entire week. I mean, there was an entire week of news coverage on this. Uh, and it really, I mean, it, I mean, it really showed, to, it really demonstrated to me that the UCP was was very vulnerable and wasn't prepared to deal with an issue like this. Uh, but well, how long but was it? But looking back at some of the nomination problems, the bozo eruptions that the UCP has already had, I don't know that this story would have had the legs it did if we didn't have the S. Todd Beasleys, if we didn't have the Cindy Ross comments and the other bozo eruptions, that are, the Sandra Kim stuff, the, the other bozo eruptions that, that have had. This kind of feeds into a narrative. And I mean, it feeds into the narrative that the NDP wants to create uh, about the UCP, that there are these, these kind of crazy racist candidates uh, or, or sim racist sympathizing candidates or Islamophobic candidates or, or whatever, but, but, but this part that the UCP is filled with, 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 uh, with, with bozo eruptions. Um, so, I mean, if, the, if, those, if those hadn't already happened, if those had already hadn't been in the minds of the reporters and political watchers and people who are paying attention, uh, then I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure this, I mean, I think this still would have been an appalling story, but I don't think it would have been as appalling, but this kind of feeds into a larger narrative. And, and that's a problem for the UCP. And I think Janice Harrington's letter, uh, I mean, I think it was a good letter and I think she said what she needed to say and it was, say, and it was unequivocal. Uh, but, but I mean, they, they, they clearly recognize that this is a problem. And uh, I mean, I can't say that there won't be any more bozo eruptions coming up. What I, like, I, I obviously reacted in, in the same ways that you guys did. You know, if if you put on your political strategist hat, this could be the UCP's TSN turning point if they play their cards right. It's a huge opportunity, but uh, hopefully, it does it doesn't pass the party by because I I mean, you well, know. so what what would you like to see? Here's the thing: I read online about how these policies are attracting these guys, and I get that this is the NFL of politics in that. You play to win, and I'm just as much of a combatant as any other, I guess, private person. And I, you know, I like making fun of the NDP and all that stuff. But what exact policies is it that attracts white supremacists? And second of all, what exactly more does the party have to do? I mean, other than stomp down particular candidates, but what more does the leader, the executive committee, the policy manual have to do? Like, I they've been pretty clear. They couldn't have been more clear how unwelcome this guy is. I guess it would have been nice to have screened him. He never should have been greenlit. Never. It's crazy that he was allowed to run. But clearly he was able to hide his... We'll, we'll, we'll give him a benefit of the doubt. We'll say his naivety. But like, what else... What would you guys like the party to do? Well, I mean, I think this raises questions about the UCP's vetting process. And we've talked about the candidate vetting process already. And Ryan, you've shared your opinions publicly about, about the process and the strengths and weaknesses of the process. Uh, I mean, part of what, I mean, the other part of the story that we haven't talked about that we, we alluded to was Press Progress, uh, the website discovered that he had had, there was some social media connections that he'd liked certain things. So they, they claimed that he'd liked on Facebook or shared or commented on, on, uh, on, posts, alt-right posts on Muslim ban posts. Yeah. Um, we'll post a link to the story uh, on the uh, on the web, on the Dave Berta website so our readers can take a look at it on their own. Um, but I mean, I guess the UCP needs to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Like, that's really what they need to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought, I thought Harrington's letter, final letter was on point, but 
what does it mean if this happens again, if this comes up again, that there's another another candidate who has certain views or takes pictures with certain, you know, vigilante anti-immigration groups? Yeah, uh, no, at right. the very base minimum, the party needs to make sure that uh, you know that their candidates aren't openly advocating racist views, and that's I don't think that's unreasonable, and I think all Albertans would expect that. And the UCP needs to to do a better job, really. Um, and yeah. because they're polling 14 points ahead in the polls, uh, they do need to make sure they have a responsibility, I think, to do to do better. Because at this point, it looks like they might form government next year. Um, yeah, imagine I'm, if this is a minister. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not going to vote for the UCP in the next election, but as an Albertan, as an Albertan, I want to make sure that the party that okay. forms government isn't going to have you know undesirable individuals or people with undesirable opinions uh, in can, their cabinet or in their caucus. Can I mark you down as undecided? Uh, <laughs> you you can mark me down as undecided. I I guess the the only thing that I <laughs> would doesn't, say doesn't mean I am. <laughs> The only thing that I would say, Ryan, I, I'm trying to come up with concrete examples of, of, you know, things that have happened in the past that they can change. We talk a lot about bozo eruptions, and I think that, you know, serving the public as an MLA, a city councillor, even in the public service is a privilege. And so when when we're vetting candidates, I think we ha that has to be in our minds. And we shouldn't settle for people who are like, this guy's really great with numbers, but he hates Jewish people. Oh, like, totally. we, we it's, just, it's ridiculous. We, we just have to, the standard has to be higher. And I feel like we yeah. have, the pendulum has swung in the other direction and it has to swing back. But I would make the argument that that, that gap that we didn't actually literally ask them, are you a member of the Soldiers of Odin? Probably came from some assumption. And actually, I would love to see his act, his candidate application. I won't because it's a privileged document. But I am 99% sure it says on there, what groups are you affiliated with? Have you ever posted things on social media that could be an embarrassment? Have you ever made statements that could be an embarrassment? So I think if anything, it is a sin of lack of resource allocation and of due diligence, not any sort of disagreement on the principle. But yeah. I agree with you and I am as upset about it as you, I think, but one way that I'm more upset about you is that I'm part of this party and I, we all wear it. 100,000 of us, or whatever the number is, are legitimately associated with people who associate with the soldiers of Odin. Like, this should not be an issue. Can, can, I, can I make a point, a point about, or respond to your point about resource allocation in the UCP? The, the United Conservative Party has a ton of money. They had enough money to send Jason Kenney and two MLAs to India for a week. And but they don't have enough resources or money to properly vet their candidates. I mean, this is a it's a priority problem. I think that's the issue. Yeah, and I, I think I've agreed with you on the record. And Okay, well, I don't want to get you in too much trouble with your party, but <laughs> hey, I'm a volunteer. But, but uh but but it's just it's 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 mind-boggling to me that no, this party that has a ton of resources, they have more resources than than, than the NDP do. I mean, this well, is the main conservative party in Alberta, you know, for God's sake. Adam, I thought you were going to say this issue has the potential to be the TSN turning point in a negative way. Because I'm not sure how to say this without sounding arrogant, but I think this election is ours to lose. And there aren't, we proved in 2015 it's possible that as conservatives we can blow it. We've proven that. But I, it's going to take some really 
sort of significant events in combined with bad decision making. This is the type of thing, you know, not him, not this episode, but this is touching into the type of thing that really does turn election. And we have to take this UCP as an absolute existential threat. Yesterday on Twitter, I broke my rule and I got into a little bit of an argument because someone posted um, a link to that story when I was quoted talking about the screening process and said, this sounds like censorship to me. And I said, absolutely it is. Like, in what universe do you think the, cons the UCP shouldn't be censoring? But I don't just mean censoring what you say. I mean censoring these people out. Like, I am absolutely comfortable saying, if you hold these types of views, or you're even flirting with them, you even give them the credibility of saying they're worth hearing out. I don't want you in my party. Now, maybe that makes me the weirdo, but I don't think so. Because I know an awful lot of UCP members, and to be fair, members of all the parties. Um, something else happened with one of the other parties this weekend, which is absolutely bonkers. And I know that it has nothing to do with the party and the activists and the donors. And these things are existential for the UCP. So, um, you know, back to my, my old uh, song sheet, the Facebook archive includes pages you've liked and places you've commented on. And if, I don't know, maybe he had deleted them. To be fair, if they delete them and then send in the archive, there's not much we can do. But if Duncan Kinney can find it, then I don't think there's an excuse for us to not find it. Now, I suspect Duncan Kinney spends a lot of time on this. But again, not an excuse. We can match his resourcing. And so, yeah, I'm frustrated. The more we talk about this, the more frustrated I am. But we deserve it. We deserve to be... You know, the fact that he, what really turned me was his comments that you, that you mentioned, that he said he saw their logo and he Googled it and he decided to be friendly. Like that is, you can say that Layla and Nicole were naive and I, I can admit if I had been there, I would have been naive about it too. But I know for a shadow of a fact, for a sh without a shadow of a doubt, if I Googled the soldiers of Odin and read their Wikipedia, I would not have given them the benefit of the doubt because they're being polite. And mm -hmm. this really shouldn't be such a high bar. On, on one side of the coin, Ryan, it is a potential TSN turning point for the UCP in a good way. On the flip side, it's the top of the slippery slope. Yeah, absolutely. As a party, have to get this right. Yeah. Or else yeah. you're going to get beaten over the head with it right. from now until May. Well, so and when, 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 sorry, when, when I talk about, when I talked earlier about narrative, build, building the narrative around this issue, um, the, the, the NDP, I mean, I think going into the next election, the NDP, I don't think they can, I don't think they can win the election on their own per se. They need yeah. the UCP to meet them halfway. Right. And this is, this is about the UCP meeting them halfway. If these kind of bozo eruptions can stick and this narrative can stick and, and more of this happens, that, that is, that I think that is giving ground for the ND to, to the NDP. And I think that's what, I think that's what the NDP needs. Uh, yeah. On, on behalf of uh, one of our listeners uh, who's reached out to me on Twitter, I insist we call them interruptions bozai <laughs> well i agree with bozai and if proper <laughs> queen's english is to put interruptions first because it's the plural like governor's general then <laughs> or it could be uh bozus interruptus <laughs> that's latin let's not get into what we're nerdy okay, well, we, we will add that to our style guide the NDP fulfilled one of their election promises this month uh, by increasing the minimum wage in Alberta to $15 per hour.
giving almost 254,000 Albertans a raise this month. Uh, Labor Minister Christina Gray said in a September 28th press release, quote, the $15 minimum wage will make life more affordable for women, single parents, families, and everyone who has been working full, a full-time job or more but is struggling to put food on the table and pay rent. But Alberta Party leader Stephen Mandel has said that if his party forms government in 2019, he would roll back the minimum wage for certain workers, lowering the rate to $13.60 an hour for workers 17 years old and under, and to $14 an hour for servers who earn tips. And while he wasn't as specific, I was surprised Mandel was very, very specific with his numbers, uh, UCP leader Jason Kenney also said that he would consider rolling back wages for young workers. And I, and I believe he also, I, I think he also alluded to, to uh, certain workers in the service industry. So Ryan, do you think it's a good long-term or even short-term election strategy for the UCP to campaign on a plan to cut wage cut wages for uh, for young Alberta workers? <laughs> well, the food, first rule of politics is not to let your opponents frame the issue. And while neither of us is paid by the two major parties, uh, I'm not going to let you frame it that way. <laughs> the the problem with the economics, and I'm certainly not an economist. And it's called the dismal science for a reason. But the problem with the economics is that it is a very complicated machine. And simplistic uh, solutions rarely actually have the intended consequence. So right now, we're not the only jurisdiction that is experimenting with fairly significant increases to the minimum wage. Uh, we've seen it in a few other places, such as Washington State, California, Ontario. Um, and the results have been mixed. because. If you increase, if you give all those workers a raise, to use the phrase that you quoted, you're also increasing a lot of other pressures on the economy, which results in inflationary pressure. Um, cost to consumers gets higher. The cost to employers is higher. Today I tweeted out the statistics, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but small business employs a huge percentage of Albertans. You know, people, the NDP and their Hammers and sickles like to talk about these evil corporations just like jumping into pools of money like Scrooge McDuck. But that's really not the reality in a lot of Alberta employment situations and small businesses. A lot of small businesses are saying these costs have to go somewhere. They're not like, you know, it'll just disappear. So this increased labor cost can actually result in higher prices. So if you're, a mar if you're on the margins, if you're struggling and you actually do need to increase your living wage, well, yeah, it sounds good to have a higher wage, but at some point, it results in fewer jobs in those entry-level positions, and it also increases and has inflationary pressure for everybody on everything. So I would say higher wages are a good thing. Higher wages should be everybody's goal. I want Alberta to have the highest average wage across the economy, across every type of position. But you can't just peg something like this. You can't just say, let it be so. And the argument that I said to you on Twitter was that, and I'm being a little bit facetious, but not really, that if you could do this, if you just have to set the minimum wage and make everybody prosperous, well, why 15? Why not 25, 35? Why not 2,000? It's because we all know that at some point, the pressures on the rest of the economy make the whole thing collapse. And so uh, wait, higher wages are good. I, I wish that they had been a little bit more moderate 
a little bit slower or gradual on the increase. I mean, this is a 30% increase in a matter of what, three years? Three it's years, huge, yeah. It's a huge <clears throat> increase. So I, you're, the, the NDP are going to frame it as Jason Kenney wants to cut back workers' wages. I don't think that's true. I think he is quite happy, or at least a lot of us are quite happy to celebrate high wages. But it's just unintended consequences could come back here and bite us right in the behind. No, but but Kenny has actually talked about. I mean, he talked about a differential wage for for younger workers. So, yeah. I mean, would I mean I I I'd interpret that as meaning a wage cut or a salary cut, similar to what Mandel, uh, similar to what what Stephen Mandel had proposed. Um, I mean, I don't think that I don't think that's good. <laughs> I don't think you should start cutting cutting people's wages simply because they're under a certain age. I don't think it really. Uh, if you're going to be making minimum wage uh, to begin with, uh, I don't think penalizing someone because of their age really makes any sense. I think it's actually quite discriminatory. Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, you could make you could make an argument that for future increases, the the you know for certain workers it would stay at fifteen dollars and it would increase for for other workers if if we're going to increase the minimum wage. I mean, I guess you could make that make that argument, but actually cutting the minimum wage uh, just sounds. Uh, like a pretty awful idea, if you ask me. Well, in a and tough politics too. Like the problem with these types of things, similar to a sales tax, is that once it's implemented, it is really politically difficult to <clears throat> unimplement it. And so, I'm surprised that this is the stand Mandel's making. I'm I'm actually like really shocked. This is the stand that he's gonna. His stand is his position is that he's gonna cut the wages of the people who are already making the lowest. Yeah. Amount in our in our society in our workforce. Maybe uh, this is why you keep referring to them as the two conservative parties. Well, they, I mean, it's very clear that the Alberta Party is a conservative party, and uh, you may not you may not like that, and our Alberta, Alberta Party listeners uh, may feel uncomfortable with that. Um, but I mean, this sounds like a pretty conservative policy to me, and it's coming from someone who was a conservative politician only a few years ago, like an actual so, conservative party politician. According to Alberta.ca, the government site. Small business in Alberta in 2017 employed 542,058 Albertans, which is 36% of all private sector employment. And there are 163,000 small businesses in Alberta, which makes up almost 96% of all employers. Our economy is not actually as heavily um, represented by large corporations as people think. It is a lot of restaurants and bars and mom and pop stores and all that stuff and they have you know the it could be the feedback networks that i'm part of um are more skewed this way but you know you hear from a lot of employers that they're worried about the cost of employment and if we end up paying fewer people a little bit more was it really worth it like i'm not advocating to leave it or that it should be zero but i just i'm a little hesitant that increasing something by 30 percent in three years is going to just be this like perfect solution when we really don't know what it's going to do. Well, and, I mean, I th sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say it's like we're living a we're living what NDP strategists like dream about doing when they're like spitballing things and talking about what they would do if they were ever handed the keys to the majority government in Alberta. This is what they would do. But like, I would have liked to have seen a bit more evidence, or at least just advocated for them to slow down. But as with the coal phase out and several other things, I mean, this is an ideological government. I mean, and people yeah. say that the NDP are like liberals in a hurry. Well, here's where you see it. Because they are just like full throttle, pedal to the metal on some of these things that 
could actually end up not being quite as beneficial as they hope. Okay, I would t- two points or maybe maybe three points. Uh, I mean, we've had three years of phased increases, and it has been a significant increase for for the minimum wage. Uh, yet, I don't think we've seen an economic apocalypse as was predicted by groups like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or the Canadian Federation for Independent Business. Uh, I was I was reading a well, I think I shared with you on Twitter today uh, ATB Financial report showing that you know that we're now we're now having record spending in bars and restaurants um, that the employment you know employment levels haven't really been it doesn't appear haven't really been impacted by this minimum wage increase over the past few years um, unemployment with the exception of, of Calgary I mean which has decreased a little bit but not, not enough um, unemployment seems to be decreasing across the province um, uh, it, it if, if costs are going up and if, if, you know, I mean, understandably this put, this does put pressure, increasing wages does put pressure on, on, uh, you know, on certain budget lines within, with, uh, within small businesses. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but if, if small business employers and owners are having to pass the cost on to consumers, onto customers, uh, it doesn't appear to be stopping them. Um, and, and, and I mean, I can say as as a as a consumer myself, as a customer of a lot of small businesses, I would I mean I'd happily pay a little bit more knowing that my uh, you know knowing that that the person who makes my lunch or the person who's stocking the grocery grocery store uh, shelves is being paid a little bit more. I mean I don't I don't have a problem with that. And and I think that the that the other point is I mean I think fifteen dollars it's a good step in the right it's a step in the right direction to move to a fifteen dollar per hour minimum wage, um, but it's still like. Not 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 enough. <laughs> I mean, I think fifteen dollars per hour for a, whatever. If you're working just a standard forty hours, which some people might be working more if they're doing shift work or less, depending, um, it ends up being about what six hundred and some bucks a week, just under seven hundred dollars a week. Yeah. That's that's really not enough to live. Um, the there are two organizations, well, a number of organizations, uh, Vibrant Communities Calgary, and then the Edmonton Social Planning Council have put out what they believe to be the approximate. Uh, living wage is what 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 you'd basically be had to pay. Uh, approximately, we'd have to be paid to to live in in uh, in Edmonton or Calgary. In Calgary, I think it was around eighteen dollars an hour, a little more than eighteen dollars an hour. And in Edmonton, it was above sixteen dollars an hour. Uh, so you know, the 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 fifteen dollars per hour is is a step in the right direction, uh, but it's it's not enough if you're going to be gauging yeah. it by by what what is a living wage. And I mean, there's other things. It's it's not just about salary. Uh, there are other ways that government can you know, can help people uh, help people make life more affordable, and that's kind of been that's been the end, I guess quoting the NDP slogan. But but really, when you're talking about it, um, I mean, there's been I've heard conservatives talk about changes to the tax code for for people who make a certain amount under a certain amount of money, and then you know, sure, let's do that too. Um, Increase the basic but, exemptions. Yeah, but but there's also things you can do. I mean, that, that I think we've seen this current government do the introduction of twenty five dollar a day childcare. I mean, we all know that, or anybody with kids knows, and has had to deal with childcare. That childcare can be very expensive and it can be very hard to find. Yeah. Um, so doing things like that that can actually help decrease the cost of living, um, or or make the cost of make, make life more affordable. Uh, I think does help. I don't think the minimum wage on its own help on its own is good enough. I think government needs to, there are other things government can do to, uh, to, to help, you know, the people who, who are in lower socioeconomic um, brackets. Okay. I just have two responses to that. The first one, back to what you said about how you know that you wouldn't mind paying a little bit more, but that's kind of the point. 
because you're also not that minimum wage earner. The yes. people that inflation will actually hurt is not the three of us, presumably. Maybe Adam makes minimum wage, but I doubt it with those those skills. It's the people who are living at that bottom margin. So sure, now they're making a little bit more, but you just made their groceries more expensive. You just made their gasoline more expensive, everything else. This is the problem with artificially trying to maneuver these these levers, is that you start pressing a button over here, and it it makes everything more expensive. The other thing that I just feel like I need to say is that this is why conservatives, or at least some conservatives, are obsessed with prosperity. It's not only for Uncle Scrooge McDuck to take a diving board, dive into his pool of cash. It's actually because we believe capitalism, the free market, a prosperous economy actually rises the tide for everybody. So I don't want to see the average wage is $15. And I also would never claim that I could live on $15. Like That would be brutally hard. It's hard enough and we do well. I'm not saying that people should just suck it up and like raise their families on $15. The goal is to get that average wage way higher. But the point is, and this is one of those reasons why we have politics, is that the left, just speaking broadly, says that there are government solutions to this, primarily government solutions to this, and the right says that there's market solutions to this. So um, it's not like a conservative would ever say, you know, single mom with multiple kids, you should raise your family at $15 because no, that like that is crazy. That's why we talk about increasing the basic exemption on tax. And this is why we're worried about inflation. So I, I don't make the accusation that either side lacks care on this. I'm just saying they're, they're going about it in a way that is, if not the wrong way, at least an unproven way. And it could end up being a reckless way. And we just don't know. Like, we're going to be one of the first major jurisdictions to find out. So it's a similar conversation to the basic guaranteed income. That, yeah, it sounds great. But, like, where is that? Someone has to pay for it. There isn't, like, an infinite inertia machine for money. Um, when you start artificially inserting, you know, it's like fiscal policy. You start inserting money into the system, and it comes out on the other end. So... Maybe we'll talk about guaranteed income some other time, but I feel like it's a similar issue because it's easy to make the case, or it's simplistic to make the case. Workers should make more money, therefore let's increase the minimum wage. It's even kind of hard to argue against that because it's like, it sounds so apple pie and motherhood, but the problem is unintended consequences. And I guess that's why rational, otherwise good people who are rational can disagree. This, this, is, this is why we, why we have political debates. Uh, I, I mean, when when you talk about talk about who should pay for it, I mean, I think it's it's and I you know we can let's talk about taxes. I mean, the 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 highest income earners now, the NDP raised tax raised uh, taxes on the highest income earners. I think up to fifteen percent for everything above I think three hundred and some thousand dollars, uh, which is five percent more than well, it's up from ten percent to to fifteen percent. Um, from the flat tax that was introduced by the conservatives. So, I mean, when you talk about who should pay more, uh, and you talk about programs like guaranteed, if you want to talk about guaranteed annual income, um, I mean, really, it should be the top income earners who pay more. Um, and it, it it distresses me that when I hear um, Jason Kenney and conservatives talking about returning to the flat tax, that uh, people who make millions or billions of dollars should have to pay the same rate of tax as someone who makes 15 bucks an hour. Um, I mean, you know, we, we need a real, I mean, we have a progressive tax system, but, but we need to, you know, we, we need to make sure we keep, we keep a, keep a progressive tax system so that we can, uh, you know, 
so the people who uh, who can't afford to pay more do. It's funny because because the trickle down stuff doesn't work. It doesn't really work that way. Well, sure, but if you kill the golden goose, then nobody has eggs, right? Like there is a balance. No and one's killing the golden goose though. But when this is the this is the tension. But I was gonna say, I actually think both sides are a little bit hypocritical on this because this is this is politics, Ryan. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we say flat a single income rate is fair. And the way that you address the issue you've concerned you've outlined is by having a, a higher basic basic entry point where you start paying tax. Progressives would say you have to have a progressive rate that changes depending on your income. So you could say we're the ones who are saying you should pay even less tax at the lower end of the scale. Like it gets really complicated and political and it has a lot to do with inertia whatever the policy is in place is really hard to change so if the political parties well if campaigns were really about big ideas this is what it would be about but i don't think the ndp are really going to campaign on um increasing it further or maybe they will and i don't think they're going to look at i don't think the ucp is going to talk about a single rate income tax so we're just going to be back to talking about I don't know, horse race? You don't think the ECP are going to campaign on a flat tax? Well, I haven't seen it in the policy book. Um, I could be wrong. I haven't memorized the whole thing. I, 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 I mean, maybe maybe it's something I haven't seen. I'd be, I'd be surprised, I mean, because it is something that Jason Kenney has alluded to. And, I mean, Kenny, to, you know, to, be, to be clear, Kenny has been purposely very coy on a lot of the things that he's, uh, he's talked about doing if, he forms if his party forms government in 2019. Um, but I would expect that that returning to a flat tax, it, it is something that I hear a lot of conservatives talk about, and it would, I wouldn't be surprised to see them do that. It is that time again, listeners. Our mailbag is bursting at the seams, so we're going to spend a little—I don't want to say extra time—but we're going to we're going to try and answer every single one of them in a lightning round format. Are you guys ready for this? Ready. Let's do this. Okay. Our first question is from Graham Fairbanks, and he says. I'd like to hear both your predictions for the Alberta Party AGM this weekend. Is the platform going to be same old PC with a little left thrown in for palatability? Will this make a difference come 2019? Ryan, let's start with you. The joke is who? <laughs> the answer is yes and no. Yes, they will mix in some old PC approaches to politics with the odd left hook. And no, it won't make a difference in 2019. All right, that that was a decisive response. What about you, Dave? Well, uh, on on the first question, uh, Doug Griffiths, I hear, former PCMLA, is the keynote speaker at the Alberta Party AGM. So it will be. Uh, it does does sound like it's it's aiming to be a bit of a P, former PC Party love fest. Uh, will it make a difference come twenty nineteen? Uh, I don't know. Will, will there be a, you know a, a little bit of left thrown in, or is it going to be the same old PC platform? Uh, it, it seems like the, the Alberta party is flanking right. Okay, our next question comes from Dave's spouse, actually. Kyla Fisher asks, can you tell us more, Dave, about the Dave Berta collaboration with Parody Yeg and the trends that you're noticing on the dashboard that you're about to explain to us? Yes, I am very excited. I'm thrilled, in fact, to, uh, to announce that I've been collaborating with Parody Yeg. Uh, you can check out their website at parodyyeg.ca. Uh, and I've been collaborating with them on a dashboard project which tracks nominated and nomination candidates running in the 2019 provincial election. Uh, I'll post a link up on the website when I post this uh, when we post this uh, this podcast, so you guys can all check it out. Um, uh, and just a shout out, 
Uh, October 25th, the Parody Egg is having uh, an event, a launch for the dashboard at the Barking Buffalo Cafe. Uh, and you can buy tickets for that event. I think it's five bucks. Um, five bucks a ticket. Uh, and I'll post a link to that as well on the website. Uh, do I see any trends in terms of, of nominating of candidates? I'm just pulling up the spreadsheet so I, or the dashboard so I can have it in front of me. Uh, there, there is a, there's been an increase in the number of people nominated. That is a decisive trend on your dashboard. That, that is an absolute trend. Um, I mean, right now, most of the parties have nominated, I mean, the, the UCP has nominated mostly men, 29 men or 30 men, uh, and about 12 women. Um, the Alberta party is a little closer with, with 23 men and, uh, 13 women. The NDP have nominated, are almost, almost at parity, uh, though they haven't really gotten into, uh, gotten into full speed in terms of nominating candidates. Um, it, it, I think it's about 30% of the candidates who are running are women so far, not necessarily the candidates who are nominated. So there's the parties, all, all the parties still have a long way to go, but check out the event. I hope you guys can make it. If you go, uh, if you're there on the 25th, uh, say hi, I'll be there. Um, but uh, if you can't make it, just check out the dashboard. Dave, you lost points on brevity, but you oh, no. on uh, doing the right thing politically. Okay. Thank you. All right, our next question comes from, according to Luke on Twitter, Luke Fevin asks, if the Supreme Court of Canada rules on Theodore as Queen's Bench did in Saskatchewan, should the Alberta government of the day invoke the notwithstanding clause to maintain public funding for non-Catholic students in Catholic schools? Do you guys know about Theodore and what happened uh, in Saskatchewan? I, I, I do. I, I read about this after after Luke sent in the question, and I was kind of aware of it before because they did issue this when 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 we were talking about all about the not when there, when there was a lot of media attention on the notwithstanding clause in Ontario, um, there was kind of a brief mention of this notwithstanding clause issue that uh, that everybody had just kind of missed that happened in Saskatchewan last year. Hmm. So, should the Alberta government invoke the notwithstanding clause to allow non-Catholic students? To fund Catholic students uh, going to Catholic schools. I mean, I think at the at the at the root of the of the question, I don't think there's any appetite to disband Catholic schools or Catholic education by the NDP government or a future UCP government led by practicing Roman Catholic Jason Kenney. I don't I I don't know if there's any real public appetite for that now. I know I know there's a there's a campaign that's building and their advocates advocates for it, um, but I just can't see that happening anytime soon in Alberta. What about you, Ryan? Yeah, the question has a few twists in it, but I know that I am in favor of maintaining religious education and choice for parents. I think that it's served us well for the last, I don't know, 150 years. And um, here in St. Albert, the system works well. You have really two Catholic school boards because the Francophone one as well. And so I, I know this is an issue for Luke that he's been sort of following very closely. And it's a passionate issue for him to essentially not have religious education but in the public system but I, I think it's important and i mean adam you and i both went to catholic school and we came out okay so mm -hmm. i would have a hard time answering the question because i'm not sure exactly if he's saying would you would you stick up stand up for religious education or against it but i am for the status quo all right. Well, that covers that. Our next question comes from Chris Labossier, friend of the pod. He's got a lengthy uh, preamble, as Chris often does, so bear with me. 
Jumping to a conclusion that the next Alberta election will for force most Albertans to choose a UCP or NDP, considering the polarity of the choice and what I assume will be a fear of vote splitting, hence less appetite for a lesser, lesser known party like the Alberta Party. What advice would you give the Alberta Party to differentiate itself in this election and quell those fears or specifically what they, what should they do to help build for the next election? I, I think the Alberta Party needs to get a better ground game than they have in previous elections. And I think that's a big part of building in building to, I mean, if their goal is to win, form government or, or form a, you know, a sizable or, or recognizable opposition, uh, they need a better ground game than they have had in, in previous, in the past few previous elections. Um, I mean, I guess don't assume that Albertans are, that most Albertans are afraid of you as you um, of vote splitting and of the polarity of choice. I mean, I think that, you know, this, it, the, the, the two parties are going to be doing a good job or are going to be doing a, 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 a focused job on on trying to make this election between the UCP and the NDP. Um, I mean, maybe there's a chance for the Alberta Party to kind of, to, for Stephen Mandel and the Alberta Party to to have a moment during the debate or or, or set themselves apart. But uh, uh, I mean, I think that, I think ground game is really where they, where they need to focus. Ryan, what say you? Yeah, I mean, Chris's preamble is kind of in line with the thesis that we've held or I've held since we've been doing this show. In all seriousness, I would say to Chris and to many of my friends in the Alberta Party, and I guess this is back to why Dave calls them the other conservative party, I think you should come back to the big blue tent. You know, we are a diverse party with lots, a whole range of views. And as we've seen and read during that, the AGM and in other places, we don't all agree either. But I would fundamentally take half a loaf or a quarter of a loaf over no loaf at all. I think that a guy like Chris Leboisier, for example, would be far better off if he wanted to run for politics in a government caucus or in the caucus who could form government than he would be as an opposition member. So I'm kind of a weird, I guess I'm a weird one. I kind of like the two-party system because I think that diversity is good, at least to better decisions, and that includes within the party. I don't want to see a fractured house with 12 parties. And the other thing is, as conservatives, we've learned that unity is a good thing. I mean, even just tactically or if you care about you know, winning, we've seen that when the federal parties get together, we're way better off than when we're separate. When we're separate, we might have the privilege of being righteous, but we have righteous opinions from the far dark corners of the opposition side of the house. So, Chris, I'm not trying to be a jerk. But I actually honestly think the Alberta Party does not have a path because voters just don't pay that much attention. Voters still think of Harper as a PC, you know, like, and voters are smart. It's not that they, it's not that they are unsophisticated. They just know that at the end of the day, this stuff doesn't matter as much as the policies that are brought forward. And I wish that voices like Chris Leboisier and you've mentioned some others would come back to the big, blue, warm, comfortable tent where you're welcome. We're going to end with a question from another friend of the pod, Stephen Delansky. <laughs> Stephen asks, is the 2018 to 2022 wild salmon policy on the mark, or does it favor commercial fisheries at the expense of the recreational fishery? We're talking about uh, the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, for those of you who don't know the context for Stephen's question, uh, but let's go, uh, let's start with you, Dave. <laughs> My question to Steve is, what does this have to do with pipelines? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and taxes are too high. 
I think the taxes are too low. <laughs> I think Steve is a little bit upset about the Riders game on the weekend when they lost 31 to nothing. Oh, that's brutal. He's just lashing out. He's lashing out at anyone who, you know, he feels can sh- share his pain. What did the DFO ever do to you, Stephen Delansky, other than supply you with ocean fresh fish? D- delicious wild salmon. <laughs> there, there are things that happen, though, to farmed fish, hey? Like they're finding oh, that they're more disease prone. The meat quality isn't as good, and there's probably lessons there um, for all of us that maybe you know the regulations haven't been working. But <laughs> to pretend like I'm any sort of <laughs> expert on this would be a bit of a stretch. You know what, Steve? Th- thank you very much for the question. And my commitment to you, and my commitment to all our listeners, is by the time we meet for our next to record our next podcast, I am going to have read the 2018 to 2022 wild salmon policy, and I will have. Uh, I will try to formulate an opinion uh, about that. So you, you heard it here first. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for helping us to put this episode together. And a huge thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Visit albertapodcastnetwork.com to check out all the other Alberta Podcast Network shows. And send us your feedback or ask us any questions you have for our next episode. You can get us on Twitter at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for tuning in.